Hi, I'm Chuck Wolf, and you're listening to the Emotion Roadmap, Take the Wheel and Control How You Feel on WPKN 89.5 FM Community Radio Station. And I'm delighted to have with me today a guest, Deborah Cannon, who uh, I will tell you more about in just a moment. Um, but I can tell you I'm a personal fan of many of the things that she's written and uh, and just really pleased that she's uh, taken the time to be with us today. And so I want to tell you a little bit about the show, though, for those of you who are new listeners. Uh, the show is about helping people understand how to manage their own emotions and how to influence the relationships with others by paying attention to how other people feel. And um, some of what Deborah has written about, I think, really plays to that. And I think you're going to learn a lot. And I hope that many of you are going to want to read a whole bunch of her books when we're all done talking to her today. Deborah is a university professor and professor of linguistics at Georgetown University, author of many books and articles about how the language of everyday conversation affects relationships. The most recent is Finding My Father, His Century-Long Journey from World War I Warsaw and My Quest to Follow. Of her previous books, the best known is You, don't, you Just Don't Understand, Women and Men in Conversation, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for nearly four years, including eight months as number one, and has been translated into 31 languages. Her books, You Are Always Mum's Favorite, Sisters in Conversation Throughout Their Lives, and You're Wearing That, Understanding Mothers and Daughters in Conversation, were also New York Times bestsellers. Talking from Nine to Five, Women and Men at Work, was a New York Times business bestseller, and one I, I really want to spend some extra time talking about, because I think it's so helpful, even in today's world, um, for women and men to understand a lot of what's in that book. The Argument Culture, which I only read recently, which was written a number of years ago, but it's so important for today's world. <laughs> um, Stopping America's War of Words received the Common Ground Book Award. And I only say this because I love you. Talking to your parents, partners, sibs, and kids when you're all adults received a Books for a Better Life Award. Deborah has been a guest on such television and radio shows and information shows as Good Morning America, The Today Show, PBS NewsHour, Oprah, and many shows on NPR. She's been featured in and written for major newspapers and magazines, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, Newsweek, USA Today, People, and the Harvard Business Review. Deborah is one of the only six in Georgetown University's College of Arts and Sciences who hold the distinguished rank of university professor. In addition, she has also held key positions at Princeton and Stanford. She's also published poems, short stories, and personal essays, and her first play, An Act of Devotion, is included in the Best American Chuck uh, Plays 1993 to 94. It was produced together with her play Sisters by Horizons Theater in Arlington, Virginia. I would like to give all of you listening a chance to hear her talk a few moments about each of her books and then focus on at least three, Talking 9 to 5 and The Argument Culture and her an, newest book, Finding My Father. So with that, I'll turn it over to Deborah to tell you a little bit about her books. She, uh, we, we talked about what we do in this interview, and uh, we decided one of the best things would be for her to just give you sort of a, a history of how each of the books came about and how they led one to, the, to another. So Deborah, I turn it over to you, and thanks again for being here. So thank you so much for that uh, lovely introduction, and, and it's a pleasure to be here on your show. Um, as, you, as you said, it was my book, You Just Don't Understand, about how women and men communicate, that, uh, that got a lot of attention, certainly caught me off guard that it got that much attention. Uh, but actually, the book that I wrote before that was the book for which I had, I would say, outside ambitions, and that was a book called That's Not What I Meant. 
subtitle, How Conversational Style Makes or Breaks Your Relations with Others. We know when we talk to each other, we have to say what we mean. And we do. Sometimes I'm asked, wouldn't this be a better world if people just said what they mean? And I usually say, well, we do, but we say it in our own conversational style. So you talk to someone whose conversational style is relatively similar, chances are they're gonna know how you mean what you said, and you're gonna pretty much know how they mean what they say. And, and this is really important, you will get accurate impressions of each other. If you talk to someone whose conversational style is different, and that could be because of ethnic background, regional background, where you grew up, the culture you come from, and whether you're male or female, it's also an influence. Um, if you talk to someone whose conversational style is different, the chances are great that they know what you said, they speak the language, but they don't know how you mean what you said. And they may come away with wrong impressions of, of your intentions toward them, of your abilities. So just a couple of quick examples of, of that. Um, let's say there's a couple, uh, they come from different parts of the country and one complains to the other, your parents aren't interested in me. They, they never ask me any questions. And the other one complains, gee, well, when we visit your parents, it's like an interrogation. They're always bombarding me with questions. Well, is asking personal questions intrusive or is it a sign of interest? Um, anytime two people talk, they have to know when it's your turn and when it's my turn. And one way that we gauge when someone else is ready to stop their turn and give the floor over to you is, is how long they pause. It turns out that a conversational style difference is how long a pause you think is normal between turns. So anytime two people talk and if there's a difference, let's say one expects this much pause and the other expects this much pause, what happens? This much pause comes first and that person starts thinking this conversation is running down. You don't, you're not saying anything. I'll be a nice person. I'll take the floor. And if it happens again and again, you end up doing all the talking. And you don't walk away thinking, you know, gee, I think we had a slightly millisecond difference in, in how long a pause we expect between turns. You draw conclusions about the person's intentions and the kind of person they are. Uh, you don't want to hear me talk, you just want to hear yourself talk, or you're not interested in me, or you have nothing to say, you're making me do all the work here. Uh, and that is something that, yeah. Yeah, so let me stop you and just say that I've had that experience. <laughs> I resemble <laughs> that remark. I, it was uh, it was very recent, actually, with a woman from Texas who has takes long pauses in what she at what she's saying, and it's sort of sometimes where I've made the mistake at the symphony when I thought the symphony was done and I stopped to applaud, <laughs> and it's not done, and it's just it's just a break, and it's the same thing with with my conversation with her, and I've had that experience where she actually, um, you know, we had a conversation offline about it because. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I will not wait. I will wait much longer now than I normally, I'm from Massachusetts, we talk fast. I grew up, you know, if you weren't talking, it was my turn. <laughs> <laughs> that's, and the key, that's so perfect. And the key is what you said, if you're not talking. No, how do you make that conclusion? You're not talking. Right. And, and that's a perfect example, right? Um, and, and this even happens among people who are married to each other, who live together, who have known each other a long time. Um, so that was one of many, many aspects of conversational style that I wrote about in the book. That's not what I meant. Obviously, there are many others as well. Um, 
that chapter had one, that book had one chapter on conversations between women and men, conversational style, his and hers. It was not the focus of my research up until that point, but others had done research on it and I was familiar with it and I had a chapter on that. That was the chapter everybody wanted to talk about. And that's why I decided, okay, I'll write my next book about that. And I had scaled back my ambitions. Um, I'm not gonna change the world. Somebody said to me, your book just needs to do well enough that they let you write another one. So I felt, okay, I've, I've hit that plateau. Um, and so I wrote, you just don't understand uh, conversation, conversations between women and men. Uh, and that was a complete, <laughs> complete um, surprise. Uh, many of you have heard the joke, uh, references to why don't men stop and ask for directions. Believe it or not, that comes from my book. Before I wrote, you just didn't understand. Nobody talked about that. It was something a lot of people picked up in the uh, interviews about the book. Uh, and, and my take on why that is comes down to a pattern that I had observed. Whenever we talk to each other, there, we always have to balance who's up, who's down, maybe relative status, uh, hierarchy, and how close or distant are we. And there seemed to be a tendency for the same conversation for women to walk away asking, has this brought us closer or pushed us farther apart? And for men to walk away asking, has this put me in a one up or a one down position? Uh, and obviously we're both interested in both, but it's just relative focus. Um, so uh, just a very quick example, a woman whose uh, husband called up Friday night and he said, uh, my friend's in town, so I'm gonna go have dinner with him. And she was kind of hurt. What if I had plans or something? You know, how come you didn't check with me first? And he said, I can't tell my friend, I need to ask my wife for permission. That's the status approach to it. She didn't think it had anything to do with permission. She thought we're connected and she would be pleased to tell her friend, I'm connected to somebody. What I do has an impact on him. So I'm gonna check. Uh, and so another pattern um, for, for many women, and this goes, I, I trace the girls are very young. They tend to have a best friend. They spend a lot, and uh, from the time little girls are very young, they tend to have a best friend. They spend a lot of time sitting and talking and telling secrets. Uh, and um, the way I put it is, talk is the glue that holds that relationship together. Your best friend is the one you tell everything to. The boys seem to focus more on activities. Your best friend is the one you do everything with. And if there's a fight, he'll be on your side. Um, and so that leads to this frustration. It was one of the things I wrote about that got picked up a lot um, from that book, the end of day conversation where she might ask, uh, how was your day? And he asks her, how was your day? Well, she answers what she did, where she went, who she talked to, what they said, what that made her think, what that made her feel. And then in answer to her question, how was your day? Eh, nothing much, same old, same old rat race. But then they go out to dinner with another couple and guess what? He's telling them about this funny thing that happened during the day. And she feels hurt by that. You know, what am I, chop liver? Uh, and I explained it as this difference in the role of talk uh, that for her, we tell, us, we tell what's happening as a way of creating closeness. And for many men with other people that you need to entertain them to show that you're taking your part. Unless you're with other people that you need to 
entertain them, to show that you're taking your part. And unless you're with other people and that you need to entertain them, to show that you're taking your part. And unless you're with other people and that you need to entertain them, to show that you're taking your part in the conversation. And okay. get the respect and attention you deserve. <laughs> Let me just interrupt and just to tell sure. you that, um, so I don't know, it was 20 some years ago probably that you, you just don't understand came out. And at that point, I, um, I asked myself the question about why I wasn't asking directions. <laughs> and I didn't have a good answer. <laughs> Ever since, been asking directions when I don't know. <laughs> Thank you so much for pointing that out. I should have explained why I used that example. Um, it, it's this uh, connection versus status that for, for many women, well, you know, you make a fleeting connection to a stranger, you get where you're going, you didn't lose anything. Uh, and for many men, it's uncomfortable because you're putting yourself in a one down position to a stranger. You know, I'm lost, can you help me? Uh, now, most men will tell me that's not it at all. They probably don't know either and they're gonna tell me the wrong thing. <laughs> Uh, well, but that's as, as a person who has three son-in-laws, I can tell you it feels that way. I don't well, want to tell somebody where they're going because I, I can't. I, mean, I, I don't want to be the one who's right. Even <laughs> it's just crazy. But <laughs> no, yeah. it definitely, absolutely, that happens. But it's interesting to me that uh, women don't tend. I've never had a woman say to me, "Well, it's not good to ask directions because someone won't know and they won't admit it. They'll tell you the wrong thing." Uh, and that's another pattern that women are more likely to say, "Oh, I don't know." <laughs> Um, yeah, so for each of these books, I could talk for two hours, so I'm going to try to just hit the highlights about each. Uh, so after that book, people said to me, but what about the workplace? I spend more time at work than I do at home. And so uh, I wrote the book, Talking from Nine to Five, about the workplace. And for that book, I actually went to work every day in, an, in two large uh, workplaces, one on the East Coast, one in California. I got to know everybody in these uh, organizations. I also uh, visited some other organizations for a shorter period of time, but these big ones got to know the organization extremely well. And I had four people in each place carry aware tape recorder and record everything they said for a week. Uh, and then I uh, had it transcribed and then I shadowed each of those four people so that I got to know them, their peers, uh, their, their superiors, their subordinates, right up to the CEOs in both cases. Um, I ended up really uh, coming up with what I have written about so much since, uh, the double bind that women in positions of authority find themselves in. I did focus in particular on women in positions of authority, that is management um, and a double bind is different from a double standard. A double standard is unfair. You're being held to a different standard, but you can meet that standard. A double bind is a no-win situation. You have two sets of requirements and anything you do to fulfill one set of requirements actually violates the other. So whatever you do, you're doing something wrong because you're violating one or the other. In, in the workplace, in positions of authority, the two sets of requirements are speak like a boss, like a person in authority, and speak like a woman. Because if you're not a good woman, people aren't going to like you. 
if you're not a good boss, they're not gonna respect you. These requirements of a good boss, a good person in authority, I don't mean a good boss as in, uh, you know, you treat your, your subordinates well, but the kind of ways of speaking that a person in authority uh, is expected to use are be sure of yourself, be uh, confident, tell people what to do in an assertive sort of way, uh, tell people what you're good at. All of those things are unacceptable to be a good woman. You're supposed to be self-effacing. Uh, you're not supposed to talk too much. You're not supposed to tell people what to do in a very direct way. Uh, even girls, you don't hear them saying, give me that, throw that away. No, go over there. They'll say things like, let's do this. <laughs> let's, let's do that. Uh, they know who's boss. They'll listen to the high status girl that says let's, um, but they don't, they don't speak in that um, imperative way. So women in these positions of authority are in a double bind. If they talk in ways expected of women, then they're seen as lacking confidence as a boss. If they talk in ways expected of a person in authority, they're seen as too aggressive. Um, and I'll give you just a quick example. I was uh, in one of these places, uh, I was actually giving a talk at a women's college and the president of the college told me, she was the first woman president, even though it was a woman's college, um, she had been overheard by a member of the board of trustees saying to her assistant something like, uh, could you do me a favor? And um, went on to tell her to do something. And the board of trustees member took her aside, guy, and said, don't forget, you're the president. He felt that by using the expression, could you do me a favor? She was lacking confidence. She wasn't talking with authority. She told me this story in front of her assistant. The assistant said, but I like that she talks to me that way. I know what she wants and I'm gonna do it. Uh, but that's an example of where she was communicating with her female assistant in a way that didn't seem to demand it, uh, but was she was seen as lacking, lacking confidence. And by the way, you see this all the time with women in public life. Um, women uh, running for office, they're either seen as too aggressive or they're seen as less, um, less, less competent. And lots of- uh, Yeah, I, I noticed that you were, have been in Harvard Business Review. I really like that, um, that magazine, the journal quite a bit. And recently they had something about women who aren't getting, making it through the glass ceiling, which is also in this book. You've got a chapter on that. Um, and what they what they wrote was pretty disturbing to me. They 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 found these are this is like this past year, uh, 2020, uh, that people are partly not making it because of childcare, and that they make choices because of childcare that they don't take as advanced a position as they might if they weren't involved with childcare. Now, what's curious is that that's true of women who don't have children. That doesn't hold water. But people seem to have this imagination of what, what actually is happening. Where I found in what you wrote about, which is this whole idea of, um, you know, this, this indirect language, this, this we instead of I, this less, uh, the, the focus of not taking ownership of your ideas and presenting them as I did this. And allowing others to say that, and even promoting people who work for you to say that so that you promote your team. And people might love working for a woman boss, 
but the people above them look at them and say, you're not the person I'm looking for, which by the way is not, if you look at the way um, vision statements are written and mission statements are written and all these organizations, they say, we value our people, but not really, not, not in the way that if you're really looking at how people are, are leading and you recognize that when a woman doesn't necessarily tell someone the answer, because they don't want to embarrass them, or they want to help them to grow, or they're trying to teach them and help them to feel confidence themselves, it's a demerit. It counts against them in the promotion scale, and they don't look decisive, and they don't look competent. And I'd, I'd love for you to say more about that, because that's still very much happening today. And I think that's so much more real than what I read in Harvard Business Review this past year about why women are making it into into that class, above that glass ceiling in so many places. Yes, absolutely. And, and it is definitely disheartening that it is still so true because the book was written quite a few years ago. Um, it, I guess you'd have to say it's a matter of unconscious bias perhaps, um, but, but again, I think the uh, double bind is more significant than we realize. So um, women have told me quite recently <clears throat> that they are told you have to take ownership of your ideas. But then when they do, they're told, don't be so full of yourself. And there's so many other uh, ways like that. Um, I've written quite a bit about apologies. For example, women are often, women will often say, I'm sorry, and, and be told, don't apologize. It's not your fault. But they weren't apologizing. They were saying, I'm sorry that happened. Yeah. So it's a way of showing concern for the other person, but it can be heard as she thinks everything's her fault. I actually talked to a woman though, who told me when she was promoted, she talked the way her boss had talked and she did not say, I'm sorry, didn't make small talk, didn't say, uh, if for example, if she came to a meeting you know, a little bit late, she wouldn't say, I'm sorry, she just came in. Uh, and she was criticized. She found she got a better response when she started saying, I'm sorry, more hmm. often because it was expected. Uh, we are so used to hearing women and men talk in a certain way that it rubs us the wrong way when they don't fulfill those expectations. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it takes a, uh, um, a very concerted uh, effort. I'll give you another example from the place where I was doing my work. Um, so the, one of the women I followed around was quite, quite high ranking. Uh, so the, uh, the guy beneath her, right just below her in the hierarchy, had to choose someone to promote from the people below, below him. And um, she was telling him who, he was telling her who he was thinking of, of recommending for promotion. And she said, well, how about this woman on your team? What about her? And he said, oh, she doesn't want to be promoted. <laughs> and uh, so this higher up said, well, ask her. And he came back, he said, gee, you're right. She did want it. <laughs> Why did he think she didn't want it? She had been clearly trying not to be self-promoting. Um, and, and another thing I observed in that research, people who got promoted tended to be people who were already acting in ways that, uh, as if they had that higher uh, job, higher position. And they were often not liked that well by their peers. The, I think the, the feeling that you're uh, not liked by your peers can be harder, I think, often for, for women than for men because this connection is so so um, important. Uh, 
Um, so many other things we could talk well, about. Let me, let me ask yeah. you again. There's another one. I don't want to spend too much time just on this book because I want to leave time for the others. But uh, I do want to mention the other one too because there's such a, you know, equality in pay is still an issue. We're still looking at constitutional amendments and all these crazy things to try and try and get that to happen. But in the research you talked about in that book, you talked about in negotiations, unrelated to anything other than you're just giving a script and you just have to role play. Um, women and men in this with the same kind of scenarios landed up with you know a supervisor talking to another to an employee about what they're going to pay them to be in this job the women seem to always have lower pay coming out and this has nothing to do with anything except an experiment that you did and so it's because i think like in classes I, I know this from my i have three daughters uh two of whom are in corporations so this is very important stuff to me <laughs> uh, what and i remember her, uh, my my daughter who's a phd in chemistry saying that she never you know the idea of of how she bragged about what she thought she got on the test she might think that but she didn't brag about it like the people sitting beside her and then when the test came back and she saw how much better she did than most of the guys in her class it was like but it was they all were so <laughs> confident and, what, and that's that's missing too. And I remember I was taught by a, a master negotiator years ago when I worked with Exxon, Chester Karras. He said that, you know, you're paid not what you're worth, you're paid what you negotiate. And I thought of your experiment when I when I was looking at it and reading about that. So you want to Yes, work? yes, that's so that's so true. And and I would even say I don't even know if those guys are so confident. We don't know what's inside, how confident people are but we only know how they talk about it. And, and many guys have been, um, have just learned over time, you're supposed to talk as if you're confident, whether you are. Uh, by the way, the CEO of another organization that I, where I spent some time hanging out, he said, people come to me and, and, and I have to make a decision in five minutes about something they've worked on for five months. And he said, I decide by how confident they are. If they seem confident, I say, do it. If they don't, then I say no. And I am thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> because some people may feel very confident, but they're not going to say, do this. I know it's going to be great. I've, you know, to the best of um, the research I've done, it should work. But of course, there's no guarantee. That may sound unconfident. You have to know the person and what they're style is. But the study you're referring to was so relevant, just like what you're saying about your daughter. Um, they, uh, this was two different conditions. They asked people to predict their grade, what grade they're gonna get in the class. But in one case, it was public, say it in front of the class. And the other was write it on a piece of paper, seal it in an envelope, <laughs> collect, collect the envelopes. The ones who did it privately, the women were quite accurate. The ones that did it publicly, they, uh, they, they predicted a lower grade than they actually got. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, this is not unrealistic because they are going to get a negative response if they talk in a way that sounds uh, self-promoting. So that's the bind, the double bind you're talking that's, about. That's it's, the double bind. And that's why it hasn't changed yet. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking about how do you change people's <laughs> feelings around things, right? I, I never believe it's impossible to change, but look at all the years that have gone by and we're still in, and we're still trying to figure out why aren't women advancing. And partly it's because they can't self-promote, even though it's what you're supposed to do in terms of what it looks like. So, let me stop on this book, but just encourage everybody else to read it. There's so much in it that's so that's so, it's so relevant, I think. Uh, although it's written a, a, few, a few years ago, it, I, I think there's so much that's so important for people to know today. Yes, thank you. It is, it is still as relevant. 
All right. Why um, <laughs> okay, quickly on to the next one. Um, the next book I wrote was called The Argument Culture. This is my only book about public discourse, not, uh, not um, the language of everyday conversation. Uh, and what inspired me to do it was with both Futures and Understand and Talking from Nine to Five. Um, people were framing it, now, not always, many of the, you know, it wasn't always, but sometimes I would go on a show and they would make it into a fight or the headlines would say, battle of the sexes. And my whole goal and everything I'm doing is peace treaty between the sexes. <laughs> if you understand why others are speaking the way they are and that they're really kind of doing the same thing in a different way, uh, you'll be less frustrated. You won't blame yourself or them or the relationship. Um, and so the argument culture, I look at uh, the press, politics, and the law. Uh, and education as well, um, how we are, and again, this was written in, the, believe it or not, uh, in the late 90s, um, and it's only gotten worse, uh, framing everything as a fight, approaching everything in an adversarial spirit. Uh, and in, in, in politics now, it's even back then I wrote how in the past there were friendships across party lines, now it's actually forbidden. Um, Alan Simpson's a Republican uh, senator. He had retired and came back and he was chastised because he went over to Democratic senators that had been his friends. You know, why are you talking to those guys? Um, and in, in the press, it really takes two forms. Uh, the attack culture, it's valued more. And in my research, I really uh, encountered um, journalists themselves talking about this. It's not so much that they're worried about readers, they're worrying about their colleagues, that if they don't write <clears throat> aggressive, attacking, uh, telling everything you do that's terrible, uh, making everything into a scandal, they're afraid that their colleagues will think that they're rolled over, that they are uh, writing puff pieces. Um, and and it, 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 it used to be <laughs> that, um, the press, and this is not not my own, uh, not I'm the first one to write about this way, that the press used to be like a lapdog, right? They didn't really expose anything. And famous example that the journalists all knew that um, Franklin Roosevelt couldn't walk, but they never exposed it. Uh, but now they're attack dogs, and uh, they should be watchdogs. Something, something right. in between, uh, and the two sidesism, which is even. Again, as, as um, dangerous today as it, as it was back then, um, that everything is too, a fight between two warring camps. Uh, and so if you want to, you think that you're going to get better uh, coverage, get more readers, if you uh, talk about what's, what's uh, fascinating, have people fight, um, insult each other. Uh, and what happens is that when politicians themselves are doing things that are not aggressive that are trying to work together, they don't get coverage. Um, and the uh, Holocaust denial, denying that the Holocaust ever existed, has had more success in this country than any other. And it seems to be because it has succeeded in masquerading as the other side in a debate. Um, uh, Deborah Lipstadt, who has written a book about this, talks about being invited on a show and they wanted her to debate Holocaust deniers. And she said, no, there's nothing to debate. And I don't wanna 
I don't want my appearance here to be the, uh, to give them a platform. It was getting worse even then. And now again, many other aspects uh, that it was getting worse even then. And now again, many other aspects uh, that it was getting worse even then. And now completely out of control. So that, that's the argument culture. Let me say a little bit about it, and I won't spend time on this, even though I want to, because <laughs> I want to talk to you about your dad, about your dad, and the book you wrote. Yes. But I, I do want to say, um, first of all, I, I just happened to pick this up this summer to read it, and it was written a long time ago. But because I'm a fan of other things you've written, I thought, well, I'll look at this, and I had no idea they had written that. And then as I started to read it, I thought, boy, this describes today. I mean, it describes every cable news channel and everybody that's addicted to the sensationalism of, the, you know, this is what's horrible. And I can't believe anybody dares to run for office anymore because of the yes, how yes. hard it is to, to keep your family safe, to not be attacked by, I don't care which party it is. I mean, parties are saying, we got to go after those people, you know? I mean, yes, so yes. I, yes, I talk about that, that in the past, you sacrifice a lot to go to public service, um, you, your, your, your private life and your income, but now you're putting your reputation at risk. Yes. Well, the one thing, I, and, and then you, I just want to say to people, I think it's a great book to understand where it comes from, because you talk about uh, the Latin word for school and, and how, where it comes from, and it's a military, it's a, it's a military origin, and, and how the people who were first, you know, the priests and monks and, and in schools were, were coming out of a church, were often, usually before that, soldiers, and and so much of what we're doing has this, you know, the, the metaphors we use, you know, we got to go to war with these people, right? I mean, we just, we just got to disagree. And, and so I think this, I, I think for whatever, it's been on steroids for the last number of years, it feels like to me. And, and it's dangerous and, I, and it's scary to me. And that's why my show's on the air. That's why I'm trying to give people some hope about how to manage their own emotional stuff suggest to people that they don't watch so much cable news. <laughs> I mean, you can watch yes. once a night, you know, just to find out what's going on. Just watch the news part, not all the opinion pieces, and then move on with your life. But uh, so I encourage people to read your book again. Although the one thing I did want to ask about is because you did talk about China as having a more harmonious uh, philosophy. And of course, in today's China, I don't, <laughs> I don't see that happening. And I wonder what your thoughts were about that. And then I'll stop after that. But. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, actually, a um, student of mine uh, wrote a dissertation about this, about Japanese. Uh, and she said, they never have two experts. They have one or they have three or more, okay. so that they're not tempted to put it into that. Um, the a Asian culture in general is not as obsessed with this as a, as, a, as a public way of doing things. It doesn't mean they're not hating each other <laughs> and uh, you know going to war, but um, I talk about the yin yang image, you know, right. you know, if it was us Western, we would have a line down the middle, <laughs> yin yang. But what it is is one uh, curves into the other and has a little circle of the other within it. So I think Asian philosophy is more, uh, less agonistic. Um, I get the term from Walter Ong, who talks about uh, Asian culture as being much more irenistic, that is from Latin, uh, peaceful. But you can use peaceful um, formats to tear each other down. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I get it. I don't want to get carried away talking in too much detail about any of these, because we have a couple more to, to mention. Okay, well, go ahead. I'll, I won't interrupt you now because I want to give you time to talk about your dad. 
Okay, let me go quickly through the next four books and I'll just give you one example of each. Um, I then wanted to get back to personal relationships and I wrote a book called, I Only Say This Because I Love You, uh, about adult family relationships. And I'll just give you one key example. Uh, it was a couple um, uh, where they're in a restaurant and, and, and the guy says he's gonna order the steak and the wife says, did you see they have salmon? Do you like salmon? And he says, will you stop criticizing everything I eat? And she said, I'm not criticizing. I'm just trying to show you something you like. Of course, she was criticizing because if she was happy with what he ordered, he wouldn't, <laughs> she wouldn't have said anything. Uh, but she also was showing caring. Uh, right. The doctor told him he should eat less red meat. She loves him. She doesn't want to lose him. Right. Um, but this, this uh, double meaning of are you showing your caring or are you showing your criticizing uh, which was true of all the family relationships I looked at, is what I ended up um, uh, building on in the next book, which is Mothers and Daughters, called You're Wearing That. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I picked that because daughters say it to mothers as well as mothers to daughters. But uh, again, that was the chapter about which I got the most questions, what everybody wanted to talk about um, in my book, I only say this because I love you. Uh, and I remember this one journalist saying, well, why do mothers and daughters have so much trouble? We're both women. And I thought for a second, it's because we're both women. <laughs> uh, women talk more about more personal topics and have more opportunity to say the wrong thing. Um, and the biggest complaint from uh, from mothers, from daughters of mothers, was she's critical, and the biggest complaint from mothers about daughters, I can't open my mouth. She takes everything as criticism, <laughs> and it really is the 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 caring and criticizing. Um, uh, just one more quick anecdote. A woman told me she's in her sixties. She said, "My mother's losing her eyesight, but she can still spot a pimple across the room." <laughs> uh, and I said, "I'm sure she comes over and says." Uh, here's this cream that, that I read about that's going to help, and and maybe I bought you some. <laughs> but who who else looks at your face with that level of uh, of uh, scrutiny? Yourself. And mothers and daughters do tend to look at each other as reflections of themselves, and um, subject each other to the same level of scrutiny to which we subject ourselves. But from the point of view of the daughter, here's the person you most want to think you're perfect because what she says and what she thinks matters so much. And from the point of view of the mother, here's the person you most want to help. <laughs> but any suggestion and offer of help is indirect criticism. So I, I try to piece all that together in that book. I've spent a lot of time trying to understand if I have a conversation that I want to have with someone and it's a challenging conversation for whatever reason, uh, multiple possibilities for different reasons that might be challenging. Um, how do I want them to feel when I talk to them and how am I going to feel? And I think uh, part of making them feel differently is understanding the different styles that you talk about. And, and style is not just men and women, but so many different multiple variables that you talk about, whether it's geography, different countries, different cultures, different religions and so forth. So I, again, I encourage lots of people to, if they haven't read you before, to get, you know, go to the library, buy your book. Yes, thank you. Um, the, the subtitle is uh, his century long journey from World War I, Warsaw. 
uh, and then my quest to follow. My father was born in Warsaw in 1908 uh, in, into a Hasidic, Hasidic family. Now, when we say Hasidim today, we think of a marginal sect, but um, Jews at that time in uh, Warsaw were more than half the population uh, and, and more than half of the Jews were Hasidim. But my father came to this country in 1920 and he lived to be 98. So he, he pretty much lived the entire uh, 20th century. And his life reflects all the cataclysmic events of that century. Um, and really, you know, it's all, it's all stuff that I knew, but putting everything into context made me understand him in a completely new way. And of course myself, because when you learn uh, your heritage, you, you learn where, where, you, where you came from. Um, but my father had no father. Uh, his father had died of tuberculosis when he was six, but he had, the father had moved out when he was two because of the tuberculosis, because they lived in one room, um, his mother, his sister, and until he moved out, the father. Uh, and this was a room in the household of my father's uh, grandparents, so his mother's parents. And his mother was one of 16 or 18 siblings, depend on how you really? count. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you the life stories of 13 of them, and I can name up to 18 if I include ones that uh, died as, before adulthood. Um, and yes, several of my mother's, of my grandmother's sisters had astonishing lives. Uh, you think of women in the old country, especially Hasidism, um, that they would be all at home cooking. And um, they all got all but one got secular education. So my grandmother uh, founded and was the principal of a school. In fact, the first school for Hasidic girls in Warsaw, probably in Poland. Uh, one of her sisters had studied uh, physics and chemistry in Zurich with Einstein had become his lover. Uh, later, when she was in this country and then Einstein later came to Princeton and his wife died, she went to Princeton to be with him. Apparently their, uh, their affair rekindled and uh, she became pregnant by him and had an abortion. She was sure he would marry her when, uh, when his wife died, but after his wife died, but he did not. Other sister was a uh, dentist, first woman periodontist and dentist in, in New York. Um, and so they were quite, quite educated and fascinating. The women were educated, their brothers were not. The women, my father spoke Polish to his mother and aunts and Yiddish to his uncles and grandparents. Uh, apparently the uncles didn't speak Polish very well. Uh, and apparently that's because the only thing that mattered for them was religious education. And the way my father explained it was the girls didn't matter. So they were allowed to go get educated. Now, how did they get educated if my grandmother started the first school for Hasidic girls? That is a mystery I haven't <laughs> quite found uh, the answer to. Um, but I think many of them, they all gave up Hasidism. Um, and this is kind of interesting. I initially thought the book I was going to write about my father was about the um, Hasidic community of Warsaw he was raised in. He had astonishingly detailed memories of that life and that world. Um, and some of the reviewers of my book are particularly uh, talk about that, you know, the 
and I only gave you a tiny bit of what he remembered. Um, I, I thought that I was going to bring back to life and preserve that Hasidic, uh, the Jewish Warsaw that was destroyed by the Nazis in World War II. But in reading about the period in, in connection with writing the book, uh, I learned that it was actually World War I that was the end of that world. And when I thought about it, I realized, yeah, all those aunts uh, and, un and uncles gave up Hasidism. Only the oldest sister and uh, one of the younger brothers stayed Hasidic. Um, so really that world was ending and it's kind of, kind of fascinating. Okay, so my father comes to this country in 1920 and that's really fascinating because I always knew it was unusual that my parents were born in Europe. My mother in Russia also came around the age of 11. Um, and all my other people my age, it was their grandparents. And it wasn't until I began, again, doing the research for the book that I realized the year my, mother, my father came, 1920, was the last year there were no limits on immigration. Uh, because he had no father, my father had to quit high school at 14, went to work in the garment district. Uh, this is another fascinating thing. There were factories in New York. Immigrants could get jobs in these factories. The conditions were terrible, but, but they could. And when you think about it, a 14-year-old boy could get a job and support his mother and sister. They were poor, but he was able to support them. Uh, he went to high school at night. That is, he took high school equivalency tests at night, went to law school at night, got his law degree, got a master's in law, passed the bar, but it was the depression. And so his, his life story is very much, from his point of view, this struggle to have a, a, to actually earn his living as a lawyer. When he sat down after a retirement to write his life, he started by making a list of all the jobs he had held and work he had done and it came to 68. And a lot of it was um, during the depression um, and quite dramatic, quite dramatic jobs. And he, it is one, he was a alcohol tax inspector and he, in his description, uh, he, his memory was surreal. He, he wrote, after he wrote these 68 jobs, he wrote or dictated detailed descriptions of each one. And about this one, he said, I held my gun hard and waited. What? Gun? I never heard my father raise his voice. He was the most kind, gentle, even tempered. But uh, yeah, he had, he was carrying a gun as a, he, they were chasing bootleggers. Uh, and he was a, a prison guard and a uh, parole officer at the federal penitentiary in, in Danbury, Connecticut. Um, and so really, from my father's point of view, when he looked back on all these jobs, he was proud that he had done what he had to do. And I came to understand that that's all he ever asked, what he had to do. He never asked what he wanted to do, as I have had the luxury in my life to ask. Um, and so because of the depression and, and wrong decisions that he made, uh, he ended up not... Um, really being able to support his family as a lawyer until he was 50 and I was in junior high school. Uh, I, I start one chapter on this. A journalist who had interviewed me called me and said, something I have here in my notes doesn't make any sense. You say your father was a lawyer and you say you were wor raised working class. How can that be? Well, 
until I was in junior high, my father was a cutter in the garment district. And after I was in junior high, he was a lawyer. Um, the brief story of that is uh, he became active in politics <clears throat> in order to get a political appointment as a way to, because he couldn't leave his family with no means of support. Um, and he was supposed to, he was promised he would get an appointment in a year and then another and then another, and it was 13 years before he uh, finally did. And then he gets this political appointment as a assistant counsel to the Workmen's Compensation Board. And uh, less than a year later, uh, <laughs> total shock, this never happened in New York State, uh, a Republican is elected governor, Rockefeller, uh, and uh, he loses the position. But at that point, he, he set, sets up his own law practice uh, and I do explain how he how he was able to do that. So, um, and my father was a communist. I have his his um, FBI file. <laughs> uh, they did not uh, find him. They did not uncover that he was a communist, which he had been. <clears throat> and um, he did become disillusioned with communism. Uh, he told me that when he came to this country at 12, he was already self-identified as an atheist, a communist, and a Zionist. He uh, became ever more passionate about his Zionism, but he did give up, and, and his atheism. Th those two went together, of course, uh, very Jewish identified, but he gave up the um, organized religion, uh, and, he, and he was disillusioned with communism. Uh, although when he was 97, he, um, he was reading a biography of Stalin uh, and he said, uh, communism didn't fail, it was never tried. Her, she was not a secret. Um, I call her, both my parents talked about her. She was not a secret. Um, I call her Helen. Both my parents talked about her. She was not a secret. Um, I call her Helen. Both my parents talked about her. She was not a secret. Um, I call her Helen. Both my parents talked about her. She was not a secret. Um, I call her Helen, that's a pseudonym. Um, and um, so the question of why he married my mother and not her, at one point he said to me, um, oh, your mother wasn't my girlfriend. Helen was my girlfriend. So why did he marry my mother and not Helen? And so that is a mystery that I unravel. Um, my father told me at one point that he had saved Helen's letters, but didn't know where they were. But if he could find them, he would give them to me. And we, I did eventually find them and he let me keep them. Uh, and so I, I traced the relationship in those letters. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's maybe it's, uh, we all have these alternate lives. <clears throat> I did, I did start out thinking my parents were not well matched. <laughs> Maybe Helen would have been better matched. The fact that if my father had married Helen, I wouldn't be here didn't quite figure in my thinking, <laughs> but I think a lot of thinking is magical thinking. I kind of realized on some level, I was thinking, well, maybe if he had married Helen, she would have been my mother. <laughs> Obviously that was not accurate, <laughs> but I do unravel that mystery uh, by reading their letters, which are quite, quite astonishing. Uh, yeah, I not only found her letters, but he had kept copies of many of his letters uh, uh, to her. Uh, he was a hoarder. I think he saved every piece of paper that came into his life. Uh, 
So I have copies of many letters that he wrote and, and I, many, many letters that he received. So uh, mountains and mountains of words that my father left me. Uh, he was a man of words. And um, although he was never a professional writer, he was a wonderful writer and clearly loved writing. Uh, so I got that from him. So uh, the last thing I'll say is um, when I was a kid, my father was never home. Uh, he was either at work or doing his political work. And I'm the youngest of three. So even if he was home, he didn't have a lot of time just for me. Um, and so deciding that I would write this book about him, which he wanted me to write, um, I think it was kind of part of his hoarding. <laughs> he was saved everything and he wrote all this stuff. And where was it going to go? Well, if I write a book about him, it doesn't go to waste. Uh, but he, um, by, by writing the book about him, I was able to keep him with me. And, and all the hours we spent talking and, my, and I have 200 cassette tapes of interviews and conversations with him. Um, I would never, I'm a workaholic, take off in the middle of the day to go spend hours talking to my family unless it was the purpose to write a book. So that gave me an excuse to spend uh, all those hours talking, talking to him about his past. And he loved to talk about his past. I think it was nice for him uh, that I wanted to listen. I think so too. Let me let me say I, I, I'm going to have to end here, but um, uh, let me just close with a couple of comments about the book. I, first, I enjoyed reading it a lot. I thought uh, of your dad when he was a very funny man on occasion. When some of the things that you wrote that he said, it would just just you know just caused me to laugh out loud. And uh, also, he was a very dedicated man to providing for his mom and his sister, and then for you and your family. And so he constantly found ways to make things happen. I think I think it actually started from the time he was 12 delivering telegrams, if I remember right. You know, yes, that's right. Just bringing tips home for, for your mom. Uh, I mean, for his mom. And then I think that the other thing that I, I came to, to really appreciate was your mom and her family and how important that warmth was for him to actually be able to move on from his mom and his sister. Because that might not have never happened if your mom yes. figured out how to get him to marry her or so. <laughs> yes, let me just say a word about that. Yes. Um, and this is something I really came to understand in, in writing the book. Why was he so obsessed with his childhood in Warsaw? Why did he remember it in such detail? Talk about it with such nostalgia. And I, and I came to the conclusion he was part of a community there, living in this big family with all these aunts and uncles. Um, as he once said, you couldn't walk out of the house without running into a relative. In this country, it was reduced to just his mother and his sister, and it was a very unhappy household. Uh, his mother, I can figure it out. My father also gave me journals he had kept from uh, before he was married. She was clearly very depressed. So it was a very unhappy household, but he would never have um, reneged on his responsibility to take care of them, except for what he perceived as a greater responsibility. So my mother succeeded in <laughs> convincing him that he had a greater responsibility toward her. Uh, and I think that she saved him because yeah, uh, together they did create that family that he missed so much from his childhood. And where can they get your book, Deborah? Where can people find your book if they wanna buy your book or any well, book? Any, any bookstore will have it. Uh, of course, I hope people will buy it in independent bookstores. Uh, but Amazon does, of course, have it as well. And, and the, 
it's it's Valentine's, so you can get it on their website as well. Well, okay. I want to say thank you, Deborah, for being my guest. It's been just a real delight to have you. And uh, I want to say thank you to my listeners. I've been listening to WPKN 89.5 FM in Bridgeport, Connecticut, community-sponsored radio, and it's sponsored by all of you. So thanks very much, and thanks for being here, Deborah. Thank you so much.